0: Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter The kingdom of heaven. We've been looking at what people call the Sermon on the Mount. It began in chapter 5. Jesus began by looking at the people in the kingdom in verses 1 through 16. Jesus spoke about their character and influence. And now his attention turns to the principles in the kingdom. He will speak about these from verse 17 all the way to verse 48, and the sermon's theme has been righteousness. This is an important word. Remember, righteousness is that ability to be right before God, and so the, the, the theme, righteousness and happiness in verses 1 through 12. Righteousness and discipleship verses 13 through 16. And now Jesus is going to talk about righteousness and the scriptures in verses 17 through 20. Jesus, remember, reminds us that righteousness isn't just simply something that you do on the outside to be seen of God or seen by people, but righteousness is something that is on the inside. It takes place inside the heart. The poor in spirit recognize their dependence upon God in verse three, those who mourn, Grieve over personal and relational sin in verse 4. The meek accept the authority of God in verse 5. Those who hunger in righteousness accept the rightness that comes from God in verse 6. The merciful give undeserved relief to others in the face of misery and poverty and catastrophe in verse 7. The pure in heart are clean on the inside in verse 8. The peacemakers in verse 9 work hard to reconcile People who are estranged from each other and estranged from God. They are persecuted in verses 10 and 11. We are salt and light, it says in verses 13 through 16. Having said all of that, you can understand that this message applies to people who would like to be invited to be citizens in that kingdom. The sermon is for the true believer, not the make-believer. This is not simply a law to be obeyed, but a description of what life could be like and must be like for the Christian who is living in the power of the Holy Spirit with the presence of Jesus inside of their heart. But remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to to a bunch of Jewish people. And as he's speaking to this incredible crowd of Jewish people, these Jewish people are going to want to know what the rabbi thinks about Moses and the law. What does Jesus think about Moses and the law? Since every faithful Jew listening, they would have understood that the law... And the prophets played a seminal portion of their life. Some of the Jews in Jesus' day believed that when the Messiah would come, that the Messiah might overturn the law of Moses. That he might overturn it and establish an even purer form of the law. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, what is this new covenant? When will it come? What will it look like? Will it include a new law? Many of the Jews thought that that might be a possibility. Many more were disgusted. They were burdened. They were sickened. They were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed by the amount of rules and by the amount of regulations and by the amount of burdens. Not just simply what Moses said in the law, but what the religious leaders had thrust upon them. They were fed up not only with these additional rules, but they were fed up with the hypocrisy and the duplicity of their own leaders. Would the Messiah free them? Liberate them from the burden of the law of Moses? Was the law even possible to keep? What about the statements that Jesus has already made? The standards of the law and even more strict standards of Jesus are going to be impossible to to keep apart from mercy, apart from grace, apart from the forgiveness of God. And so for the people who were burdened, many of them became entrenched, making up rules and regulations because they, quite frankly, kept breaking the law. Human beings do that. They invent religious traditions in order to make God's standards seem bearable. The traditions multiply, the traditions complicate, and then the traditions eventually give a false sense of security as people walk through their life trying to pretend that they're basically good people. But there was really only one person, one person, one person in all of Jewish and human history who successfully observed every single Old Testament commandment. There was only one person who never sinned in thought or word or deed. There was only one person who successfully observed every portion of the law of Moses and even every portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And that person is Jesus. And so in verse 17, look what he says. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He is in effect saying to all of the Jewish people who are listening to him on that day and every day in every generation. Don't think that I came to be a law breaker. Or that I was going to personally undermine the law. Don't think for a moment that I am going to undermine, break, forbid, or prevent anything that has been revealed by God to be left undone. The law and the prophets were a reference. To all of the Old Testament. It's a reference to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a reference to all that was written in the Old Testament. But remember, in addition to the Old Testament, the religious leaders embraced what was called the oral law. And the oral traditions. The oral law And the oral traditions were the rules, the regulations that were handed down that addressed the specific circumstances of the law and then attempted to address the specific circumstances where they believed the law was silent. In Jesus' day, there were two main schools of rabbinic thought. One was called the school of Hillel. The other was called the school of Shammai. What both schools had in common was both agreed that there were 10 commandments of the moral law that was written by the finger of God. There were 603 commandments that were given throughout the writings of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for a total of 613 commandments. Much of their life was spent knowing these, observing these, making sure that they weren't violated. And I obviously don't have time to go through all 613 commandments. But if you are curious, you can go to Chabad, that's C-H-A-B-A-D, C-H-A-B-A-D, Chabad.org. Chabad.org is not a Messianic Jewish site. It is an observant Jewish site where observant Jews have listed all 613 things that you're required to do. Now remember, Jesus, unlike most leaders, is not going to just simply cut ties with the past. Jesus doesn't dismiss what God has already revealed, but rather he will insist that it be upheld and fulfilled. Jesus brings to the attention of everyone listening, I am not a lawbreaker. I am not going to abrogate the law. Now, abrogate is is a legal term. It means to repeal or rescind. Webster's Dictionary defines the word this way, quote, to end something or to cancel something in a formal or an official way. Jesus is basically going to say the demands of the law remain in effect. The purpose of the law remains in effect. You mean Jesus didn't make those demands go away? No. No. The Lord Jesus reminds his listeners that the law's demands are as binding as ever. But what about the believer? What about the believer who's united to Christ? What about the believer who finds himself or herself in Christ? The whole rest of the New Testament, and particularly the writings of Paul, is going to suggest and then not just suggest, but actually declare that the law is fulfilled in Christ. That the fulfillment of the law takes place at the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus. But are there outstanding revelations that remain? And the answer is yes. In Jesus, we experience not only salvation from sin, but we're also free from condemnation and Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says therefore there is now no condemnation that means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes committed by people who break the law but that doesn't mean that you are now free to break the law the lord doesn't abolish the law the lord doesn't give permission to break the law the lord invites us To consider his own statement about fulfilling it. And when you come to the end of the verse, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The word fulfill means to fill up or complete in the sense where a law comes to fruition or completion. Any law can be completed. In what sense? When you obey the law, you've completed it. Let me give you an example. Are taxpayers required by law to file a tax return? Are you required to do it every year? When you file your return, have you completed the law for that year? Does the law renew every year? In that particular instance, it does. When we obey the law, we complete it. Or when the law is reissued in a new form. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's the meaning here. When the law is reissued in a new form, it is complete. The life of ministry... The sayings of Jesus. His life. His works. His death. When later someone will ask Jesus. What must we do to work the works of God. Jesus will say. Believe in him. Whom the father has sent. He invites us to believe in him. And so. That becomes part of the point that I think is being made. Let me give you another example. Almost everyone here has heard of the word prophecy. Most of you know what the word prophecy is. It's a statement that's made in an advance with the expectation of fulfillment. The Bible has two kinds of prophecy. Those that have been fulfilled... And those that remain unfulfilled. Did the Bible prophesy that the Messiah would be a Jew? Fulfilled. Born of a woman? Fulfilled. Born from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David? Fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem? Fulfilled. Does the Bible also teach... That this king will occupy the throne of his father David. Yes. Does he? No. Unfulfilled. The prophecy is intact but remains unfulfilled. And so the coming of Jesus in part is to fulfill. To fill up. To make complete. How will he do this? By perfect obedience to the law. Jesus fulfills the law by keeping it perfectly. By embodying it in living form. By paying the full penalty of the law as the substitute for sinners. The Bible says that Jesus was made Under the law in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When Paul writes that, he means that Jesus was born a Jew. He was circumcised a Jew. As a little boy, he grew up under the law. He was never guilty of breaking it, either in letter or spirit. Not even once. And so Jesus fulfills the law in all of its aspects. He fulfills the moral law by keeping it perfectly. He fulfills the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything in which the law's types and symbols point. And so when you look at the Old Testament and you begin to read about the tabernacle or you begin to read about the sacrifice or you begin to read about the offering and in the book of Leviticus you find a burnt offering and a grain offering and a peace offering and a sin offering and a trespass offering and then the requirements to observe those offerings. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus says to the religious leaders later on, he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life but they are those which testify of me after he dies on the cross and marvelously rises from the dead he begins a journey on that very resurrection Sunday and he opens up the book of Genesis and he walks through all of the books and all of the prophets and he declares that this is a book about him he fulfills the moral law by keeping it perfectly. He fulfills the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything that it says. He fulfills the judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. Even though the religious leaders will accuse him of being a lawbreaker. They're most certainly going to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath they're most certainly going to accuse him of blasphemy because they understand that Jesus is making some amazing claims that he's God, and they can't stand for that. And so they will kill him. But even as you read this, it should prompt you to ask a different question about yourself. And what you should be asking isn't are you suggesting that Jesus wants me to keep the law? What what I'm going to suggest to you is that Jesus says don't think that I came to destroy the law. Are the demands of the law in effect? Yes. Can you break the law with impunity? The answer is no. The truth is can your mother your father, your family member, your friend, point to an area of your life and say, you are guilty of breaking God's law. Now, some of you who are clever might think, well, the Jewish law was given to the Jews, and I'm not a Jew, so I'm not under obligation. Um, It's it's an absurd question, and it doesn't even apply to me. Paul will write, yes, that's true. Uh, Gentiles are not under Jewish law, but are Gentiles under Gentile law? Do the Gentiles have a law about killing people? Do Gentiles have laws about lying, stealing, cheating? Do Gentiles have any kind of standard at all? And the answer is yes. Do all human beings everywhere have a conscience? The answer is yes. Do all human beings everywhere have a conscience which says repeatedly, do what's right, do the right thing, do what's right, do the right thing? The answer is yes. God has given that to each and every person. So that when you lie, you cheat, you steal, when you've done anything wrong at any time, you begin to understand something. The presence of your conscience, the presence of any law, the presence of God's law point to one overarching fact that you're a lawbreaker. Did you lie even once? Did you steal, no matter how small or insignificant, even once? Our breaking the law is the most obvious proof of the law's ability to condemn us and not save us. We deserve punishment, but God will give us a savior. God will give us a savior. And unlike the religious leaders, unlike the religious leaders, Jesus knew what the law really meant and what the law really required. And because he knew what it meant and he knew what it required, he is going to expand what it really means and what it really requires. Paul will talk about this at great length in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. And he will point out that the law's purpose in part is to convince the sinner of sin and the need of Christ as the redeemer of the righteousness. And so in verse 18, when he says, for assuredly, I say to you till heaven and earth earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The Lord Jesus is saying assuredly, which means what I'm about to say is true. When the Lord says verily, verily, or truly, truly, or assuredly, he's drawing special attention to a point that he wants to make. Does that mean that everything that Jesus has said from verse three till now isn't important? Of course, that's not what it means. Everything that Jesus says is important. But in the hierarchy of importance, he goes, Oh, important note. Jesus points to the permanence of the law and the impermanence of the universe. So when he says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, read reality, read everything that exists, read everything that exists. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. What he's talking is he's describing letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The jot is the smallest Hebrew letter, yod. In the Greek, which this is the Greek translation, it uses the term iota. The Greeks would use iota as the smallest grammatical increment. The tittle is a pin stroke or a brush stroke. In the ancient Hebrew language, when you wanted to differentiate certain letters, there would be a brush stroke that you would make. Let me put it in terms hopefully everyone can understand. Imagine you're in kindergarten again or in the first grade and I say to you draw me a cow and you make a circle good so far and then you make two little horns on top of the cow's head the little horn on the top of the cow's head is the tittle in the Hebrew language what is Jesus in effect saying Jesus taught that the word of God and the scripture of God and the revelation of God is important down to the last brushstroke. If we were to put it in terms that each and every one of us could understand, hopefully it means that when God writes something, he crosses all of the T's. He dots all of the I's. How long will the law last? As long as the universe lasts. But there's something interesting. There's something even more interesting. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus will say, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The law came by Moses. John writes, But grace and truth came by Jesus. The point of verse 18 is the law exists as long as the present world. Jesus is in effect saying all the Hebrew scriptures are important. All of the Hebrew scriptures are important even when they seem unimportant. Minimum, this means read the Hebrew scriptures with respect. Minimum, it means be prepared to obey it, even when it seems insignificant to you. But look what he says as he continues in verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Pause. Has Jesus left you with the impression that he's going to break any of the commandments? He won't either. He says, if you thought that I came to break the law, you're wrong. Not only did I not come to break the law, I will keep the law down to the most minuscule minutiae. He says, not only will I not break it, I will fulfill it. Pause again. Does this passage teach you, instruct you, give you permission to break the law? No, it doesn't. We uphold God's law. We esteem God's law. Here's part of the point. In Christ, we receive salvation. In Christ, we're free from condemnation. In Christ, we're given the power to obey what we used to be powerless to obey. In verse 18, Jesus recognizes the authority of the scripture. In verse 19, he recognizes our responsibility to obey the scripture. In the original command, in the original language, the command is this Jesus says, I'm going to try and give you a literal translation. So, whoever loosens up the idea being restrict or relax, even one of the least of the commands, and and so by his behavior teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, what are the least of the commands? What's the least that he's talking about? What is he making reference to? What is he suggesting? Unimportant passages in the Old Testament, he's already made it clear that there is no such thing. He's already made it clear that every single word and every single sentence and every single chapter should be read with profound respect. I am going to point something out to you. Nine of the ten commandments Jesus will reiterate in the, Ma- in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as commands to be obeyed. There's only one that will not be mentioned as a command. To be obeyed. And the one that is not mentioned is the Sabbath commandment. As a matter of fact, we learn from the Hebrew scriptures that the Sabbath commandment was given first as a sign by God to humanity and second as a sign to Israel. Paul In Romans chapter 3, verse 31, will make this amazing statement. He will say, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, we establish the law, unquote. In what way? In what way does Paul establish the law? We might put it in in, in a more different way of of saying, Paul is basically saying, We place the law on a more sure foundation. We place it in its proper setting, its firm footing. We do not regard it as a means to salvation. Paul will write, we don't see it as a means to sanctification or glorification. Paul is going to write that the presence of the law and obedience to it becomes the manifestation of a heart that's right with God because Jesus is living inside of you. And so now we pause and we get to the heart of the message. And that is to answer the question, what is the believer's relationship to the law of Moses? And the answer is we have no relationship whatsoever to the law of Moses. And for the person who's saying, well, then what relationship do we have? We have a relationship to the law of Christ. We have a relationship to the law of Christ as it's given by Christ and commanded by Christ and reiterated by Christ. The believer isn't a law breaker. The believer submits to Jesus and everything that Jesus wants. The law was given to Israel. The law was not given to Gentiles. The law of Moses was not given to the church. In Deuteronomy 4-7 it says, For what great nation is there that God is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and be diligent to keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children, teach them to your grandchildren. The very point of the passage is that Israel had a unique relationship and specific calling in relationship to the rest of the nations in the world. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 4 we read, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. When it says in Malachi 4.4, 4, for all Israel, it didn't mean all the earth and everyone in the earth and all the nations of the earth. So what was the purpose of the law? Well, again, in order to answer that, and I need to answer it quickly because I'm running out of time. So I'm only going to give you an abbreviated answer to that question. But the first thing of the purpose of the law, the first and most important purpose of the law was to reveal the holiness of God. To reveal the righteous standard that God demanded in order to have a proper relationship with him. The purpose of the law was to reveal God's righteous standard of how you were to conduct yourself before him and how you were to conduct yourself before each other. The purpose of the law was never, no never, I hope you are starting to get it, never, to be a means of salvation. Remember, God redeemed Israel before the giving of the law. God was in Egypt, bringing the plagues, liberating the people, and he released them. It's after he released them and redeemed them. And it becomes a type and a picture of salvation from the world and from sin. If true salvation is to take place, it is always by grace. It is always by faith. It is always by sacrifice. It's never, no, never by keeping the law. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who grew up as a Jewish person and became a believer, points out, quote, the content of faith has changed from age to age. Exactly what one has to believe to be saved differed from age to age, depending on progressive revelation, that which God revealed over time. But the means of salvation never changes. And the Mosaic law was never, no never, no never intended to give the Jew." A way of salvation. It was given to people already redeemed from Egypt. Not in order to redeem them, unquote. So the purpose of the law? To reveal the holiness of God. The purpose of the law, number two, to provide the means or the rule of conduct for Old Testament saints. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul explains Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, unquote. In verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law was never a means of salvation. The law becomes a measure whereby you know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and the knowledge of sin. So if the purpose of the law is to reveal the holiness of God, if the purpose of the law is to provide a rule for conduct, if the purpose of the law number three is according to what the Old Testament says in Leviticus 11 in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in Deuteronomy chapter 14... The purpose of the law, in part, was to keep Israel a separate people. A distinct people. A separate people and a distinct people who could worship God individually and worship God corporately. But it was also, number four, to reveal sin. As I've repeatedly said, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Sin. And Paul is adamant. He is, he is consistent. He is even dogmatic. Paul repeatedly says the law isn't the, the solution to the problem of sin. The law isn't the solution to the problem of sin. Keeping the law is not the solution to the problem of sin. To so what is the solution? His repeated testimony. Faith and confidence and trust in Jesus. Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin. Loving Jesus, trusting Jesus, embracing Jesus, walking with Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin. And it might shock you to understand that the purpose of the law, if it's to reveal the holiness of God, to provide the means of conduct for the Old Testament saints, to keep the Jews as separate people, to reveal sin The fifth reason is so shocking and overwhelming that it upset the Jewish sensibility. Paul will write that the purpose of the law is to compound personal sin. In what way? Remember, Paul is going to answer the argument of the Corinthians who say, Paul, are you suggesting that the law is sinful? And Paul says, oh no, the, the law is righteous. The law is good. The law is given by God. Paul explains the law isn't sinful, but it serves as a base of operations for the carnal nature and the sinful nature in which to launch attacks. Romans 4.15, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul is very specific. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. That means no crossing of the law or the breaking of the law. He doesn't say that there's no sin because he'll argue exactly the opposite. Was there sin from the time of Adam to the sin before the giving of the law in Moses? Did human beings from Adam forward sin? We know that they did because they were all wiped out in Noah's flood and then Noah and his children were preserved. Oh, by the way... When Noah survived the flood and his children survived the flood and their children survived the the flood, did the flood wash away sin? No. No, it didn't, did it? It was still there. Was there a law between Noah exiting the boat and Moses? that you can't walk on the grass or smoke marijuana or get high or watch porn. There was no such law. By the way, even though there was no law like that, were were there things that decent human beings knew were wrong, wrong, wrong? Do you think Noah and his children and their children and their children's children knew that it was wrong to kill your unborn child? Do you think they knew that it was wrong to lie and to cheat and to steal? Do you think they knew that it was wrong? And so Paul will point out that what the law will do is it will provide a basis of operation where men become sinners, not just simply because the law is given, but once the law is given, it becomes a Base of operations where this, where the sin can wage war against the sinner. Paul will use the illustration of covetousness. He'll basically say, I had no idea, I had no idea that it was wrong for me to want stuff that I already had enough of. But then I, I discovered something. I read the law of covetousness, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's goods. And then I realized, I realized that I wanted something that didn't belong to me and it slew me and it killed me because now he's a lawbreaker. What's the purpose of the law? To reveal the holiness of God, to provide rules of conduct, to make Jews a separate people, to compound personal sin. But there's another purpose of the law. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, Paul writes, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, if the law is supposed to do what it's supposed to do, then the law should reveal to you the fact that you've broken the law and that you can't have a right relationship with God based on keeping the law. If you're going to have a right relationship with God, it has to be on the basis of something else. Remember what I always said? Salvation is always by grace. It's always by faith. It's always by a sacrifice. And so by faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Because he's given us Jesus by grace. Let's do a thought experiment just for a moment. Let's imagine just for a moment that each and every one of you and me are required to keep the Ten Commandments. All of us. Let's say just from here on in, everyone has to obey the Ten Commandments. And now we begin. It's going to take you about ten seconds to break at least three of those Ten Commandments. And the Bible says that if you're guilty of breaking one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking all of the commandments. Let's, again, for purposes of discussion, just say that you are under obligation to keep the Ten Commandments. And then you're under obligation to keep the 603 other commandments that are posted at Chabad.org. And let's just say for purposes of of discussion that some of you do your best. You really do. You really, really try. You quite literally wake up in the morning. You've got your list of 613 things of not to do. And you start dropping like flies as you break one and then ten. And then you discover something that it doesn't take you very long to break most of them. The gospel message is that the law is rendered inoperative with the death of Jesus and with the death of the Messiah... In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. When Paul's writing that, and he is writing it as an observant Jew, as an observant rabbi, as a person who has observant Jews and observant rabbis following him, but he says, knowing this, that a man isn't justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law no one will be justified does that mean that Paul ignores all of the law of Moses no actually there's going to be a lot of things that Paul will do Does this mean that the Christian has no law? No, it means just the opposite. That we have a new law, a better law, the law of Christ. And what is that law? What is it that I must do, that I must do, that I must do? If you're a lawkeeper and you go, I just need to know. I just need to know what I can and can't do. Okay, here it is. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Underline it. Read it. Believe it. Walk in it. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What? Yeah, that's what you have to do. You mean this is a church that preaches law? Yeah, that law. That's what you have to do well, what if I don't want to do it? Then you're a lawbreaker and you still need a savior. And you're right. By keeping the law, even that law, no one will be justified, but it is a law that you have to do, that you're expected to do. That Jesus wants to empower you to do. What's the other one? It's found in Romans chapter 8 verse 2. Where it says for the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Jesus has made me free. From the law of sin. And death. We're able to fulfill God's law, he'll write in chapter 8 in verse 4, that God will change our nature and grant us strength and victory over our unredeemed flesh in Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. He'll confirm our adoption as God's children in chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. He will guarantee our ultimate glory in chapter 8, verses 17 through 30. He's going to bring us back to life. And so Jesus says in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In order to understand what Jesus has said, you're going to need to know who the scribes were, and you're going to need to know who the Pharisees were, and you're going to also need to know what the word righteousness means. When Jesus says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness, pause, righteousness means right with God, upright with God. Because you've observed his commandments. That's what Jesus means by this. Right with God upright before God because you've observed what he's asked you to do. And then he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, what did the scribes and the Pharisees embrace in order to believe That they were right with God or upright with God. It is because they had written down these commandments 613 and then fastidiously decided that they were going to try to accomplish it. Who are the scribes? These are the scholars who studied, interpreted, commented endlessly on the law. Who are the Pharisees? These are the people who originate in Babylon when the first temple is destroyed, Solomon's temple. This is the group of people who emerge because there is no sacrifice and there is no temple. They're asking the question, then what does it mean to be a Jew? How can I be a Jew when there's no sacrifice and there's no temple? And they go, well, whatever kind of a Jew we're going to be, we're going to have to be a Jew without a temple and we're going to have to be a Jew without a sacrifice. Well, what kind of a Jew are we going to be? We're going to be the kind of Jew that stays separate from the pagan customs and the idolatry of Babylon. And they start off right. Right. I just don't want to be involved in all of that iniquity, and I don't want to be involved in the idolatry, and I don't want to be involved with any of that. And I believe they started off right, and then I also believe that they wound up wrong. Because, like so many of God's people who love God's word, they began to focus on the rules and the regulations and they completely abandon relationship And so when he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's going back to his initial statement. You don't understand the law. You don't understand the nature of the law. You don't understand the purpose of the law. And you don't understand that part of the point, because you are sinners in need of a savior, is that the law is going to remind you that you've broken the law. And you may have had some sort of external observance, but it hasn't changed who you are on the inside How can a person gain entrance into the kingdom if their righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And by the way, none of you, none of you, none of you will ever, ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees knew the law, and you don't. The the scribes and the Pharisees attempted to honor it, and you don't. The scribes and the Pharisees learned Hebrew and in the original language. They went to the temple. They offered the sacrifices. They did everything that they could possibly do externally. So what's the standard that Jesus is looking for? perfection Jesus is looking for perfection not just outward observance but an internal rightness of heart and before you panic and before you despair god accepts perfection and he's willing to impart to the imperfect sinner perfection to everyone who trusts Christ. Because now you all have a perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness, because Christ has fulfilled the perfect righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, Therefore, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We're imploring you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does true faith, what does saving faith in Christ accomplish? Acceptance by God. What else does it accomplish? An empowering presence to live a life that conforms to the law of Jesus. Believer, here's what you're free to do. You're free to do everything that Jesus says, you're free to do it. Well, what am I restricted from doing? Everything that Jesus says, no. Well, how do I find that out? Read the Bible. Well, what if it doesn't give me the answer? Examine your heart. What if that doesn't give me the answer? Find someone smarter than you. What if he doesn't give me the answer? Then make a choice and live by faith because without faith it's impossible to please God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum gave an illustration. He talked about moving from one state to another state. And it's an excellent illustration because it reveals the fact that there are certain laws in the state of California that apply in the state of New York. When Arnold Fruchtenbaum moved from California to New York, he had a California driver's license. Was his California driver's license good in New York? No. For a little while. 30 days. That's right, for a little while. But according to the state of New York, you have to get a New York driver's license. Are all the driving laws in California the same as in New York? No. No. When you're in New York, do the people in New York expect you to obey the laws of New York? That's exactly right. Are there some of the laws in Moses that are exactly the same in the New Testament for the New Testament believer? In the law of Moses, could you kill people without a cause? No. Could you lie, cheat, and steal? Could you take your neighbor's wife? Are there certain things that Christians are expected to do? Yes. Are all the laws the same? No. They're not all the same. Imagine the prince of Saudi Arabia comes to the United States of America. When he's in the United States of America, is he expect to observe and respect the laws of the United States of America? Yes. yes. Are there things he can do in Saudi Arabia that he can't do here? There are certain things that the law of Moses may have required that aren't required of you but everything that Jesus requires is required and none of the things that Jesus requires that doesn't require is not required I know for many of you are going that's not good enough for me then come back next week Heavenly Father Lord we know life is an adventure And Heavenly Father, we want to do everything that Jesus wants us to do. And we want to refrain from everything that Jesus doesn't want us to do. Lord, we know that we're citizens, not just of this world, but of a new world. We're citizens of a new kingdom. You give us a new heart and a new loyalty, a new affection a new expectation. Lord, we pray that you would stir within our hearts a deep and profound love to do exactly what it is that you want from us and to refrain from doing exactly what it is that you don't want us to do, all informed by a real love for you and a love for each other. Lord, give us the strength to do what you've clearly asked us to do and that we can't weasel out of to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.